And then I lost her and I couldn't find her again, so I just left. So the, this is the 14th the Shut 14th Up and Sit Down podcast. 14th, hello, everybody, Hi. and welcome to the 14th. Um, We've been slow on our podcast recently because... You can just call... If you call the police or something. Yeah, I know, but I, it's a tassel. Send out, like, a photo and just a description it's of... It's taken us time to get back on our sort of podcast horse. A description of what's left. After January and February. But now we're back on and we're going to we're gonna get the podcast train podcast. Uh, running. Uh, With Cole, then the Cole is Games. Uh, if, you, uh, if you've not listened to us before, shut up and sit down. The podcast is a podcast 14. about... Games. Uh, games you can play in your own home, games but not, because can... we're immediately not going to talk about that to some degree. Yes. Basically, shut up and sit down is a podcast about play. Yeah. Is, is what we're gravitating towards. Don't say it like towards. that, because that's the whole reason that she's missing. Uh, it's true. Um, um. <laughs> so let's start off with the weekend games. Uh, but very quickly, after we talk about what we've been playing, we're going to talk about... We're going to do a special feature on gaming in books, and we're going to talk about our game of the month. We're going to analyse the heck out of a game called Robo Rally. Well, kind of, I guess you are. Well, I'm going to... Robo Rally. Paul's going to talk about why he doesn't like it, and so, I'm... I know, but it's going to sound stupid, and I'm going to sound awful, and like a terrible person, because there are <sighs> reasons why I should... Like it? But we can, we'll get onto that, yeah. and basically everyone can think less of me. So stick around for the analysis, everybody, and some books. books. And for now, we're going to talk about some junk. Uh, uh, mm. Not junk, not junk, but some sort of assorted uh, stuff, roughage. What, what have you been doing this week? Uh, what, what have I been doing? Mostly I've been ill. Um, yes. And I've been excited because it was just announced that this is the <laughs> year of space cadets. So yeah. I've, I've been lying in bed and I've been sick, but I've been excited. Which is interesting because that means uh, there's going to be a space cadets game and there's going to be two more space cadets expansions for the two space cadets games that already exist. Yes, space cadets being a universe uh, from the designer... Jeff Engelstein and we're big fans of pretty much everything he puts out for this we've got Space Cadets which is a kind of cooperative game about running a starship which is very good which is very good we've got Dice Duel which is a game about rolling dice and a team versus team game where your ships are controlled by dice and you're flying them into each other also played in real time very quick about like it's ridiculous. It, it is fast. like a 15 10 minute game or something yeah but it feels like it lasts 45 minutes but not because you're so focused yes, the whole not, time not because yeah. it's rubbish um, it's not rubbish. And then we've They're got both a, very good games. a new Space Cadets game announced, which is Space Cadets Away. Away team, where you have an away team and you are all... Uh, you are, it's uh, cooperative again, uh, isn't it? Yes, there are one to six people, I think. So you could play it by yourself, which is fine, and that's okay. Um, or you can play it with um, up to five other people, if you, can, if you know that many people. And, and is it real time as well? I don't know how the mechanics work. You have, I think you have three actions, and they can be to do something like fire your atomic blaster or <laughs> um, scan something with your scanner or probably go to a place. Um, there are pictures already up on the internet of like a work-in-progress version, yeah, which no, I don't think just, is... There are hexagons involved. There so are hexagons involved, good. and there are individual members of, your, of the crew who I think will have different jobs, like a yeoman and a doctor and a captain. Basically and, more and cooperative Space Cadets stuff, because Space Cadets isn't it necessarily... It fits in the theme. It's not yeah. defined by it being you know, panicky or being in space. It's, wow. actually, it's defined by a kind of panic and things going wrong. It's I, Certainly you are a team of people who together will fail, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah mm. So yeah, that's, you're that's gonna, gonna have be your good. crew and land on a planet, and there'll be a brain in a jar, and you'll fail. Uh, to do whatever it was normal, whether, yeah. normal working day in space. Uh, but if it, yeah, no, I think it will very much have that theme of things will go wrong, and it will be about how you and your friends improvise your way out of danger, uh, which is kind of what it's all the Space Cadets games are about. Yes, no, and which is exactly why I'm very excited. I'm also so excited for. I mean, a big Space Cadets expansion where you can all do more things will be good, mm. but I'm not enormously excited about that because Space Cadets was already very difficult to teach and very big. So adding more things to each station oh, is going to... Well, it's There's a gonna, panic button and things. Everyone has... Every station is going to get still more unique rules that's going to make it... It's... Yeah, I'm not... Ex- I'm not as excited as I should be just because I don't have an existing Space Cadets group. But uh, Die hmm. Fighter... The expansion for Dice Duel looks just... Which has a tiny starship. Just one tiny starship piloted one by one player. person. Or apparently you can just play it with two people and you can shoot your tiny starships, Star- starships uh, at each, each other. Which you could do. You could do that with another person. I mean, that excites me because, it, I mean, like... 
You know me, I love asymmetry. And the thing we've got here is now you've got this team versus team game, but with this asymmetrical component because there's just a fifth player on each. Doing a separate thing. Yeah. I think think it might be more interesting than um, the main Space Cadets expansion. I think you have a point that Space Cadets is already complicated and frantic. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what the Space Cadets expansion looks like because it might add a lovely... Um, it might be like a really good drop of sauce in the soup, or it might make things too complicated, or it might switch out a few elements. I mean, maybe. it's definitely something if to it look does, into. If it does pull out some of the stations, maybe, or give more options. Because this is the thing, it's like, mm. Space Cadets is like this huge six-player game, and if you play with less than six, it doesn't make the game smaller. Like, just about any other board game in my collection, it, it, makes, it makes it, it yes. bigger for everybody Makes it more else. difficult for everybody, yes. Yeah, because you just have more jobs to do. And it's a fine game, and I love it, but... Mm. It's mm. Mm. We've we'll, been, we've, we'll see. It's not just theoretical games that don't exist yet in our lives, though, Paul. We've been playing some real ones. Have we? Uh, yeah. Every, everything exists in my head as sort of perfect, idealistic, we, well, untouched <laughs> concepts that are unsullied by plays. We uh, haven't um, uh, played enough of this to get the review down yet, but we've been playing Time and Space, haven't we've we? We've looked a bit at Time and Space, which is certainly uh, a le- quickish <laughs> game because it happens in real time. Again, a, and in another space. space game that happens in real time. Although we should clarify, I think I've been playing more Time and Space than you have and you've sort of been looking in horror at the board. The first and- time that you played it, I watched. Um, and I was partly because I had a bit of a cold and I was confused. But I was, I was really confused. And even playing it, I was actually really bad <laughs> time and space is why don't you try and explain time and space and this time, is like the ultimate space test it's easy it's easy all you do is you have a ship and uh you have a planet and what you want to do is you want to trade goods with other players and you can carry goods on your ship and you can cause your planet to demand certain goods and those goods are different colors and the idea is all the players around the table are creating demand for colours and satisfying each other's demands for colours and when you trade stuff it's good and everyone's happy except it all happens in real time and you can only do two things at once yeah. you have two sand timers yeah. and when they run down you put the sand timers on whatever you're currently doing they're 30 seconds long once they've finished you've done that thing and that could be uh, creating demand or it could be moving your ship to another location and you're constantly switching your sand timers between different parts of the board or different parts of your stuff uh, to have a turn mm-hmm. so it, it's initially you put them down and you sit and you look at it and you go okay I've got 30 seconds to decide what to do next but inevitably they go a bit out of sync and all the players start to go a bit out of sync and then you're just negotiating with everyone what do you want I can't get to you right now I've got 30 seconds before my ship can fly to where you are with its stuff on and you're also trying to upgrade I think both your ship and your planet mm. by all flying the around and picking up on your planet yeah. and then there's bizarre stuff like as you manufacture demand, uh, because you need to get rid of all your demand tokens before the end of the game, or, um, as you manufacture demand, it will, you have to place each demand token on a different area of your planet board. So if you, you can't just manufacture demand. Mm-hmm. Every token of demand you manufacture stops a part of your planet from working until another, yes. until another player has fulfilled it. So it's this insane thing of trying to make stuff and demand stuff, but not get in the, but also fly to other people's planets. And to give sure. them stuff and then also they if, might want, hopefully. If you get there and some other player has just nipped in and now suddenly you have all this yellow cargo. Stuff, and, and no, you can't give it to people because they don't want yellow stuff And it's anymore. literally stuck on your board, clogged everything up, and it's like sand in the gears of your planet and it just doesn't... Work. I've discovered I kind of have a fetish um, for kind of economic board games that that it's almost impossible to get your head around. Like, I got really excited. So there's this. Mm-hmm. I also got really excited when a friend of mine was telling me about um, Container, I think it is. Oh, yes. Yeah, so this is, a, this is an older game um, where basically you all play shipping container companies and the board is an island and it would be a regular, it would be an ordinary board game if you were just trying to ship things off the island and you get these big wooden container ships and you can put containers on the wooden ships and it's all very nice except it tries to be a more accurate model of being a container company because you can and I'm, I'm gonna get this wrong but basically you can buy stock in the goods that you're actually shipping off the island mm-hmm. you can also buy stock in other people's company so it might be the case that your, your boat you're sending to a certain place but it's full of stuff you don't own and your company is no longer owned by you but by other people this kind of like stretching Sounds okay stretching economics until it becomes more confusing and disturbing than any Lovecraft game the kind of dark heart of capitalism type stuff so did did that mean that you got 
uh, a little furry about time and space? Did you I, get all furry and warm and... I got pretty warm. Spacey. Uh, do, do I, yeah, I want to save my real opinions for the review, but basically it really interested me. Oh. And I, I like the sand timer flipping mechanic, yes. and I like that moment where... We always say that the heart of an interesting board, a heart of a board game is interesting decisions, and certainly I was holding my sand timer, wondering where to put it. Did I want to make stuff, make demand? Mm. Did I want to move my ship? And I was talking to other people, but of course, to play the most efficiently, you want to be as soon as your sand timer flips, you need to have that decision already made in your head. And I did like a lot how it has a sense of pace because when you start a game of time and space, and you put your initial two sand timers down, and your ship takes off, and your factories begin working. You have to wait. There is literally nothing you can do until the sand has run out, and then you can pick up a sand timer and make another decision. And it starts off as really slow, but by the end of the game, it really picks up in yeah, speed. By the time your sand timers have desynchronized, so essentially you have to make your fifteen seconds to make each decision before your sand timer runs out. I liked it, liked and it. Uh, the decisions become way more important as well. Yeah, just it scales as you go through it. How did you of, feel? Did, were you left cold in the vacuum of space? I was extremely bad at it. <laughs> But although I'm actually extremely bad at a lot of games. Matt uh, did manage to win our first game by doing something uh, redonkulous of just... He w- we, none of us noticed. He but was he, quite focused on upgrading. Yeah, Because just, upgrading is a thing that you can do, he but just it's not something you have to do. And so by the end of the game, he was like these sort of this advanced species that had left us all behind. And we were just scrabbling around in dirt. And that gave him lots. more sort of room on his player board, didn't it? Yeah. Because if he pops down a thing to create demand, it creates... More dem- it diversifies what he can do, yeah, which makes him more flexible. And so it was bizarre. We looked over in his planet, it just became this sort of fractal demand-producing mm. entity. That might be the way to go. It was. It was. I, it, I always really like when people can do something smart in a board game and then beat me because it's like it, it's a test of the board game's mechanics. You know. What else have we been playing? Uh, we played. Well, we, oh, we played good old Rex again. We play. Yeah, and we play. We won. You and I won you and a I game won of Rex. Rex together. And who says you're bad at board games? Uh, Not me. That's a bit, bit lucky. A bit lucky there. A bit lucky there. <laughs> but it was a good game of Rex, um, which we've talked about a bit before, and we will be talking about again in more detail. Yeah, soon. I think what we did discover though is in that proper Rex, detail. Rex just about holds up still, and it's still a great thing to spend your money on. It. We had fun with it, and it was. Do you want to very quickly brief the people at home? I d- yeah. Well, Rex is uh, a remake of the old June board game where you all, all of you, are alien races on an alien planet trying to take over the alien planet to be in charge of the alien planet at the end of the sort of alien history millennium where there is an <laughs> alien war but basically each race has a different power the, the real nugget of the game is that every race has a particular power that manipulates the game like when you auction uh, when you bid for things in the auction round one of the players is the player who actually gets all the money from the auction one of the players has um a way more developed strategy and uh, traitor part of the game. One of the players can win the game if they can actually predict when the game's going to end and how. One of the players is, just vomits troops onto the board constantly from space. Yes, yes. And it's all of you are like good at a particular thing. And the thing is, sometimes in the game, there's the opportunity to make an alliance yeah. with other players. And then you start to combine two particularly interesting powers in an interesting way. And you do fuse into one kind of super super player. Which you is, do. And I've said this before, but this is the mechanic I want to see in every war game ever. I want, I want mechanics to form an actual alliance rather than kind of pseudo working together in that way that's... It was rubbish in Risk and it's still rubbish in war games when it's like, let's not attack each other and then you don't until you do. And yeah, and in, in Rex you very much... You often have the ability to actually give some of your power to the other player in mm. some way, which is amazing because... You're already maybe negotiating a bit when you play with the other players anyway, but the moment you start trying to form alliances or things like that, yep. it, it everyone has a stake in what's happening and it's worth actually having a conversation about the game. And it is <laughs> it's properly political. And the interesting thing about it is the rules are actually really simple. I yep. mean, we had to sit down and relearn some of them, but once you've done a turn, no, it's everything actually, makes sense. It's really not that bad. I mean, it's like games can be really awkward. I remember when, I, when we were playing Virgin Queen and someone asked me a question about what happens if a boat is sieging a castle then and the units try and move out when it's winter or whatever, some <laughs> conflux of rules and I was just like, good. But with Rex, actually everything is very simple. You yeah. find the rules and then there are never any more questions for the length of the game, which is really important. It's really neat to do it's that. It's important for a strategy it, game as well, because people can plan. Yeah, you, don't you get... focus on playing the game, you focus on what you want to do, and then particularly with something that has negotiation, the negotiation becomes the game. It doesn't become trying to dig into a mechanic and exploit like 
if I move here on this turn, then do I get a double card thing for the unit to it's yeah it's not about that it's about exploiting the other players and your powers which is what it should be yeah which is neat i very much enjoyed watching matt's entire high command leave in the opening turns of the game as it Uh, turned out all of us were holding his traitor cards i had all brendan's commanders as my traitors Uh, which was nice uh, yeah, no, that, that's what you want to see. Um, and then yeah. we, we discovered we had a hilarious mechanic whereby, because my species actually lived in the city that was being taken over, uh, and we thought this was, I, we thought this was broken, and we checked the errata, not. and it, it is actually it very specifically says in the errata it's meant to be this way. But yeah, your species was very rich, and I oh that's it yeah, but I get all the money from auctions, so between auction rounds. I could essentially just give you back the money that you that paid. I gave to you, and then yeah, I could I could pay you lots of money all the time to mm. pay for special strategy cards that gave me a particular power, and then I could cut everyone out of the bidding. And then your ability, one of your abilities, was you could just give me money, so I could pay you lots of money, you could <laughs> give it back, and we that was our way of cutting other people out of the game, and they had to then use their other powers instead to try and but they get around us. They, I remember they, they lost. Well, it was we were a bit. Well, it was it was tough for them. It was tough for them. <laughs> But that's the kind of thing that happens in the game is players, you get to be uh, like a space politics jerk to people and they have to find a way to space politics jerk you back. But it is very much like we noticed actually playing it that it is, I didn't notice the first time I played Rex, but it is very much a construct from the 80s because of exactly that, the ability to discover that um, certain rules can be played in a certain way to do something that which would be quote unquote unfair, especially if you saw it in a modern design. But the fact is, mm. no, uh, it's a game for geeks by geeks, and you are expected to geekily identify holes in the rules and then geekily identify and play counters. around with them. Yeah. And then everyone else has to deal with that and negotiate around it, which yeah. is uh, which is probably not. I, I don't know if that's so bad. I, I would say, ironically, it plays closer to real war than, yeah. than, than like this kind of everything is straightforward, unfair, and type thing. Well, it's the type of th- that the type of thing we were doing would be in a newspaper as an example of corruption in the real world. <laughs> it would. Yes. And the other players just have to do a thing about it. So they have to they have to do their thing and work around it. It'd be interesting to do it with six people and have three lots of two or yeah. two lots of three and see how all those powers combine. Uh, no. Or a, not. A very strong game, which of course we have still haven't reviewed. We actually replayed but it. But that's coming. We will be doing a review. Yes. In future. Oh, sorry. This is bad tea. Is it? Yeah. What's in it? I don't know. It's, okay. It's bubbling. Oh dear. We played Dread Curse again as well, which you'd played before. Right. Right. So right. let some background. Paul played Dread Curse, and this is a game. It doesn't happen often. Pirates. But sometimes I will look at the back of a board game and go, "Well, this is just great." There's no way this isn't great. And then I sent Paul off with it, and he came back and said, "It's, it's not. It's not good." And it's I, not bad. And I said, "No, Paul." And months it must later. be good. It must be good. <laughs> it's not bad. I mean, initially I played it with. It goes up to it's like three to eight people, so it goes up to a, a table full of people. So I played it with like seven or eight people every time I played it. Um, and we've talked before about how games sometimes can be a bit different depending on how many people you have. Some mechanics work better and worse. So we played it again with four, didn't we? Yep. Which is four half people as many. who were really ready to like it. And uh, Dread Curse is a game of pirates and collecting cash and trying to... You're divvying up the gold after a kind of... Yeah. After taking a prize. After a raid. And uh, the idea is to come away with more gold than anyone else and not come away with a horrible black spot curse. Yes, because two coins in the bag, this bag of mixed denominations of money are black spot coins. Yes. And if you're holding them at the end, you lose. So it's... It's bad. Manipulating rolls and cards to have as many coins as possible but give the coins away... Or to put other them people, back in the bag. Or steal from other people. But then you don't know what other people are holding because everything's face down and you might steal a curse. Oh my god, it's got like six... So it had six phases that I thought were straightforward and would be like a slinky going downstairs. But in practice, every one of those phases, the slinky just stops. So, okay, tell me um, how, how you found it then. You One thing that you said when we played was you found it a bit slow. Yeah, well, these things... I mean, taking coins and panicking and giving coins to other people, this should be quick, but like... So, first off, everyone has to... I mean, if we take it from the end of a round, you all have to bid for the role, who's the captain and who's yeah, the Yeah, there are eight different roles that you yeah. can be, and they all give you a power but in your But the bidding turn. mechanic is, you know, you have to put slide coins forward, and because you have a big pile of coins in front of you, that's awkward, and then you reveal. There's probably going to be a tie, and then you have to reveal more, and then one player will pick, and then the other players have to pick what they are, rather than it being automated. And just every phase of the game was clunky, especially the mechanic whereby people steal from you, but somewhere in your gold coin pile might be the black spot. So yeah. you have to 
Oh, you have to constantly mix up your coins so that people don't know where the black spot is. But that means you don't know where anything else is either. So you're just so you sit there looking at your coins again. But did you ever? Did anyone ever steal a black spot from you? No, no, it's never happened in any game I've ever played. <laughs> okay, but there are these two curses out there. Particularly when we got to big games of like seven or eight people, you you never felt in any danger of actually picking up anything that was dangerous. And then if you did pick up something that was a problem, it was quite easy to get a power that just gave it to somebody or put it back in the bag. Right, okay. Uh, I like the So mon- I didn't feel at risk. I you like, like the monkey. I like that you can, you do you can like get monkeys. new action cards from giving coins to the monkey in the middle of the table, and sometimes you can steal from the monkey. Yes, um, and the monkey cards let you do a particular like one-off. Like stop people from sort. leaving the game, which is or st- which is they funny. St- funny. They mostly <laughs> stop people. They stop people from stealing from you or leaving the game, or you change your role, or you do something. And they it's... are very much the sort of stop people from having fun type. So, type, uh, so how how do you feel about Dreadcast? I don't like it very much. Uh, say it, say it, Paul. Say you don't like it either. Uh, I didn't like it all that much when we played it with more people, and I don't like it all that much with fewer people. Okay. I'm afraid. I'm really sorry, Dread Curse, but I. It was. It's fine. You don't have to have regrets. Let's move on. I, I just. It's just like I don't know what's like. There's Paul. Some money. You gotta. You gotta be brave about it. You gotta be there's bold. Some, there's some money, and it, I don't know how much anyone Ask has. Ask me what and I played. I don't know where the curses weekend. are, and I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, ask me what I played. I'm going to show you how this is done. I, I can. It's written on a piece of paper. It but is. let's ask pretend. Me anyway. uh, what did you play this weekend? I played Rivet Wars. Rivet Wars. And go on. I bet you me. had a great time with I, Rivet Wars. I didn't because Rivet Look at Wars. That box. Is... It's got like some robots uh, and an eagle symbol. Rivet Wars is a big glossy Kickstarter release from Cool or Not Mini, uh, the people who brought you Zombie Side. Oh yeah. Um, it is, well, first of all, the miniatures are gorgeous. This company absolutely know what they're doing. You play, like, tiny little cog toy soldiers in a World War One amalgam-type deal. Okay. And um, and I looked at the manual, yes. and it was when I was flipping through the manual, and I sort of Great. got I love flipping. page one of rules, because it teaches you how to move your soldiers and how to shoot your soldiers, and then the rest was was basically a, a comic book and backstory and, and references and fluff. There were no other rules. And I said, okay, I don't think this is going to work. And it didn't quite work. It was just, it was very much kind of a definitive Kickstarter minis game, the kind that would arguably give others a bit of a bad name because it's been funded because of the gorgeous art and these gorgeous miniatures. This has happened quite a lot though, hasn't it? There have been some really lush looking Kickstarter games with really good production values in terms of their miniatures. I was just listening to the Dice Tower podcast the other night, Doom that came to Atlantic City. Do you remember that Monopoly alike? Yes. Which was saved by Cryptozoic. Yep. Guess, did the Dice Tower like it? Did, did they say that the rules are not that good? Yep, that's what they said. But the miniatures so, are good. But the miniatures are nice. There's, but there's more of these coming. I mean, some of them might be really good, but there's more coming. There's like that Aliens board game that raised a lot of money that has really good miniatures of aliens. And then there's... <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, if you want miniatures of aliens or zombies or robots, there will, is a game I mean, coming. well, this is the thing. I've ta- I talked to uh, one of the guys who works in my local game store, and um, he was saying that he did back the Kingdom Death Kickstarter because... He just he plays D and D, and actually, that's a great deal for those miniatures that you're going to repurpose into your Pathfinder or Dungeons and or anything. Yeah, anything you play. Yeah. So if you're into minis, you know, arguably, you might just throw away the rules. But yeah, no, Rivet Wars did make me a, make mm. me do a frown. You just thought it would be more complex. There would I be thought, more to do in I it. I thought it would be. It's just the. Uh, um, we're gonna. I, I am reading a book on the beginnings of miniatures and war, miniature wargaming at mm-hmm. the minute, and. Um, you know, these are games that are crafted with an enormous amount of love and passion, and this felt like someone essentially clocked in for the day and was told that they had to... Well, we've got this River Wars game coming out, and these miniatures, you have to write some rules for it. And he said, okay. And he did, and they function. But, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, take something like the X-Wing miniatures game, yeah. which is, of course, based on the Wings of War system, and it's tense, and you need to maneuver, and you need to get things into the line of the correct line of sight, and then you'll roll dice, and, ah, oh, that, that ship will be stressed, and he'll do a barrel roll, and... You'll have an exciting, amazing time. I did a barrel roll. I'm stressed. Oh, you would I be, go wouldn't home. you? I want to go home. I want to go home. You'd lose your pickles, and then a missile would go past, and you'd go, fuck. That never happened in Star Wars. No one <laughs> it ever would got... if I directed it. Actually, no, I suppose at the end of Star Wars, when they're all in the trench, they do get a bit stressed. They all sit there bouncing, and they get stressed, and then they explode. 
Wow. And Darth Vader isn't stressed and he just flies and shoots things until the very end when he gets massively stressed. Does he? What happens? He does because Han Solo appears and shoots and Darth Vader goes, oh no, and sort of flies off. And he's just really stressed. Yeah, well there's a lot of stress in the X-Wing when it's just Like his, his AeroPress coffee filter falls over and his, uh, his bag of tracker mix gets spilled. <laughs> and he's really annoyed. Um, and he's trying to press the tracker mix through the grill on his face. You're loving this. Um, so I just let you freestyle for a while? What else have you played? Bloodbound. Bloodbound. Oh dear, what happened? Why are you looking Blood- at me like that? <laughs> Bloodbound is a game from Fantasy Flight. Well, it's a game, a secret game, like the kind that Paul and I sometimes often like. Yeah, so... A, a game of secret vampires. Hidden roles? Meow. Um, That's not a vampire. No, it's not, is it? Um, Help, there's a vampire after me. Meow. Uh, players are secretly assigned either red team or blue team. Okay. Or, and um, you're going to have a secret role. Okay. You're Immediately, have... this sounds interesting. It's good. And um, what happens is, basically, you all have three hit points. But every time you lose a hit point, you will take a token from the center that reveals something about your character. Yeah. For example, you might take the three, indicating you are rank number three, which might be, a, I don't know, a warrior. Okay. But that doesn't tell you what side you're on. So then maybe you get hit a second time when you take a red token, so now people go, ah, right, he's the red warrior. And everybody knows this about Yes, you. it's revealed okay. publicly around the table. Um, players can also reveal, once they have taken their, revealed their class, they can use their once-a-shot class power, like the warrior can protect somebody else and that person can no longer be hurt. I should specify, the, the way that the people take damage, and the turn order in this game is a bit fruity, because you essentially have a large cardboard knife token and I, I will reach across the table and go, I stab Paul. And Paul, you will then take a damage. But then you have the knife and you can stab anybody else. Ah. All this sounds interesting. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Did, well, you know, So it didn't work? Well, let's put it this way. You know how much sort of the resistance kind of falls apart when people actually try and do the pseudo-maths involved? Yeah, we've talked before about the, how the resistance kind of... You fall into a routine of... The first couple of rounds go a certain way, and then you start pulling apart who is what. Yeah, except, but there's always that person in the resistance who's disgusting, but wait, if he says this, and then you try and follow the thread through, and if he's lying, then that means that that person is also a spy. And there's not much to do, you just kind of watch that person try and think through it. Bloodbound offers an impossible quantity of information and garbage, some of it useful, some of it not useful, and it's just not a puzzle that's fun to pick apart or pull apart. And also, if they're not, it, it, it just, well, not very many things about that game go the way that, uh, that you would hope. So, okay, so it just, you, di- you didn't end up being excited about people hiding who it's they exciting, were. It's exciting, and it has exciting concepts, like uh, the, once you actually kill somebody with a knife by taking away their last hit point, the game ends. And if that person was the highest ranked vampire on that other player's team, mm-hmm. then you win. So it's, you want to try and find out not just who the other team is, but what kind of ranks they have. And, uh, and so that you can knock out the person who has a particularly high rank, but it just becomes the lying isn't fun because there's too much maths and the maths isn't fun because there's too much misinformation and confusion. It does sound, so it sounds a bit chaotic then basically. It It sounds a bit sort of, you can't put together a decent strategy unless you spend ages thinking really hard about, which isn't really what it's supposed to be about. If it's a game of hidden yes. roles and Werewolf deception. is as good as it is because it is a game of sort of like you have gut instinct and yelling yes. and, sort and of reactions. And, and it leads to primal kind of passions, whereas primal. Bloodbound is kind of uh, stuff. Being a detective and really slowly working. It's everybody being a detective except without knowing who to even share your information <sighs> with. Because yeah. like, let's say you start puzzling stuff out, Paul, then you might also not want to share any of that for the first third of the game or... You know, depending on who you're sat next to, anyone, even because you don't even know what team anybody else is on. I can immediately see that getting kind of slow. Yes, it's it's a weird one and didn't quite work, and I suspected it wouldn't quite work, but it doesn't quite work. Oh no! Um, but anything else interesting that that's crossed your table or consciousness or mind? All or... kinds of stuff. But we're going to be putting up videos and sexy, sexy reviews. Uh... Well, yeah, we've got a video coming uh, soon. With in a couple of days. I'm not going to. I've got a wanna... review of Quantum, which we didn't post last Friday because I was uh, really unwell. I fell over. Um, but very quickly, we were just going to ask because 
since we last recorded a podcast, I went to the LHS bike shed yeah. and sat in a shed. Well, you and Brendan. Me and Brendan and a friend of ours, uh, and Laurie. lovely Laurie, uh, who, who looked so terrified at one point. He had a rough time, everybody looking at him while he tried to fly a bike shed. And at one moment said, I'm not in control, and then moved the stick and everything moved, and <laughs> and he was in control. Yeah, so just in the comments, we, we've kind of, yeah, we w- want to cover um, role-playing stuff and... We put Pip in a locked room recently, and then we had the that was interesting. bike shed. We basically just want to know if you guys are as interested as we are in kind of these physical play installations, I guess. Because yeah. in other forms of like a game that, you know, they're not really... What are they? I mean, LHS Bike Shop. Well, it's kind of like it's in a way it's video gaming, but it's not. It doesn't. I don't. I've I've always been kind of bored by definitions and genres and descriptors. Um, It's more that we. It's whether we should. How far we should cast our net. It feels like a decent fit for shut up and sit down. And everybody, since receiving donations, one of the better tips I've got for keeping the site running is uh, one of one of you commenters suggested just. Why just just keep doing what you are interested yeah, in? Yeah, what we get excited about. Then the site will be best. And certainly, I'm excited about a group of people turning a bike shed into a raptor from Battlestar Galactica and letting you fly it around. Uh, so yeah, just let us know if you've been digging that kind of analog stuff. And if you have, then uh, we'll send Pip to be locked. We'll lock Pip in, in more rooms or whatever. But yeah, no. Um, and if you have any recommendations, particularly obviously if they are in London, we are we are near London. Yeah, in the London area, God, people I've done, do. I've done some weird stuff, man. I, things I, in London. A couple of maybe three years ago, I went to something called. There's a company called Firehazard who also organise heists. Oh yeah, and the, but they, I went to their post-apocalyptic games, and it was set in this old bunker in London, and uh, the idea was it was like games that were played after the bombs fell, and we were all underground, and there was stuff like one of our teammates had a gas mask put on and there were loads of glow sticks on the floor and he was crawling around trying to pick up glow sticks. I love glow sticks. We were all yelling at him. That might not even have been a game. It <laughs> <laughs> just sounds like a really bad dream. Yeah, no, it did happen. Wow. I'm sure. But yes, no, certainly any recommenda- recommendations we'll happily take. And or, I mean, we can go further afield than London as well. If oh, there's anything really interesting happening into the U- in the UK or France... Uh, Ireland. Ireland, even. Wales. The island of Ireland. Greenland. The island of Basically, Wales. Basically, if you're doing something and you want us to come take a look at it, and if you are further away, maybe we can reach some kind of... Outside of the UK, like Scotland. Uh, yes. Um, if we reach some kind of funding halfway as well, if you really want to come, have to come and look at your Australian thing and you have government ah. funding or something... Don't look at that. You'll love Australia. Australia's a long way. You'll love Australia. Paul. It's really far. Yeah, but, you know, you can, I'll just dice you with codeine and put you on a plane. That's what happens to me all the time. Like, <laughs> like Mr. T, I just wake up somewhere. Okay, children, settle down. Welcome to Book Club, Smith. Put your shirt back on. Books! Books. They're not as good as board games. Shut up and sit down, book club. Uh, this is only going like to be books. a brief segment, everybody. It just dawned on me that we've never I hate books. talked about all the sort of board ga- game and book-related crossovers yeah, that right. exist. Uh, people have been playing games now in history for at least 50 years. Yes. And so books have, people have started to write books about the theme of games, or with the game theming in, haven't they? Yes, they have. Um, can you name me one that you might have read recently? Well, I can name uh, a few. All right, well, just calm down. There was something... Oh, yes, but before we move on to books, books. you uh, tweeted something interesting. You tweeted the from the official account. Ooh, did I? The history of Twister was on <laughs> oh, Guardian. Oh, yeah, from, the Guardian did a retrospective on... Um, on, on Twister and initially how it was designed and the idea I think possibly something that you played on the table with your fingers and then the guy like saying, Fingle on iPad that's ironic oh dear let's not talk about that and then the guy saying actually this might be good uh, to play on the floor and how it, how they played around with the idea and how it got on TV and when people played it on TV suddenly everyone thought hey this looks fun and a little bit risque and particularly at the time which i guess was the 60s anything that was a bit risque was massively risque because you know back then i don't know conservatives but uh yeah that was it was really interesting to see someone write about games and write about the history of games and write about their experience of playing a game in that kind of context but you know fiction or non-fiction um we want to talk a bit about people writing about games other people writing about them yes um I'm, I don't know, that's a non-fiction retrospective, but you also have been reading fictional gameish things? I have, although let's cover my own non-fictional retrospective thing first. Okay. I, I've been reading Playing at the World, which I'll be sure oh, to yeah. put a link to in the podcast, and I'll probably do a big review on Shut Up and Sit Down. 
Um, it's quite a big book, isn't it's it? It's huge. It's like a thousand pages. I didn't even know books came that big. Um, and uh, it's the history of gaming as excuse me, gaming as simulation from mm. the 50s onwards. So, oh really? It's really about Dungeons and Dragons, and it starts off covering uh, war gaming because uh, that would have already been like established in the 50s. <coughs> what war gaming? Yeah, that would have already been well, happening for a little while. It yes, in, not maybe very good in pockets. No, okay. and uh, you know you have H.G. Wells' Little War and the Kriegspiel stuff yeah. in um, the uh, 1800s. Yes, yes, in yes. Germany, the German war game thing. But um, this talks about sort of a hobbyist simulation gaming and really war gaming as a hobby started in America in the 50s. And then it talks about how war gaming essentially transformed into D&D across mm, yeah. like a 25 year period, which is a really, really interesting. It um, is really interesting. But yeah, no, it's, I'm, I'll save lots of it for, for, uh, for the review, but anyone interested, should, I can reveal, pick it up right now because it's awesome. You have to, I like the book on the history of salt I read a while back. You do have to do a bit of editing mentally because it's so exhaustive and so scholarly that wow. when you do get bored, if you're reading it for pleasure, just skip ahead. Skip ahead. Um, but it took, yeah, like uh, it talks about how um, during the 50s, one of the big problems Wargamers had was uh, this is just one tidbit um, was finding opponents. And so the Avalon Hill General, which was this the, the Wargaming mag that went out to oh, like yes. a few hundred people or a few thousand people or whatever across America, would have an opponents wanted section. And people discovered they could get the best possible results from um, essentially being aggressive and bellicose. And so people would say, you know, like, would begin entrance with things like, Seagull, fascist destroyer, once opponents in the Minnesota region. That's a tiny bit worrying. It's, well, it's funny because then this organization, imaginary organization called Spectre from, uh, (laughs) from, from the James Bond movie, appeared and said like Spectre has claimed New York State if you and so sort of counter Spectre wargaming groups would form and but the, this is the extent that oh boy you know that we had to go to yeah but, just and it was I guess together. people like corresponding my, by mail and then yep, sending each yep. other things and driving off to see each other across America in cars mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and just to just to beat your friend beat this stranger at a particular uh, game blimey and it talks about uh, yeah like how also in especially play by mail games um, uh, dice rolls essentially couldn't be trusted yeah and you know what this is clever do you know what they used to get around dice rolls in play by mail games in really serious ones uh, they'd have to have numbers that were generated by someone else somewhere yes. like but a newspaper num- date yes. or, New- or stocks yes oh yeah I it. guessed it I guessed it by myself like an adult well done um, wow that's really clever yes uh, they use stocks um, but yeah, yeah talking about how it became D&D and D&D and sort of medieval wargaming came about because of um, fantasy books. Yeah. And just, yeah, generally the history of D&D is fascinating. I'm only about a, th- is. a third of the way through it, but um, just even talking about things like where, why was D&D popular? Why did the fantasy element of D&D p- become popular? Which mm. was, in short, because of Tolkien. But then it goes back and goes, why was Tolkien popular? Which is, does it, does it answer that? Yeah. Do you have an answer for that? Um, God, let me think. Um, so Tolkien sort of arrived as part of the... Tolkien was partially popular because of... Um, it, it was picked up by the millions because it arrived in America at a time which was very sort of... It was the 60s. It was yeah. sort of like... It was free love and it was very anti-establishment. And mm. Tolkien is had provided this kind of like back-to-the-fields vision of fantasy whereby we don't have to have this... It played into people's distrust and dislike of modern society and the way modern society was going by providing a very okay. pastoral yeah. fantasy. And the opposite to urban, the growing urban life. Yes. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, but no, I can't remember too much more than that aside from it. It, it is even tied into, like, um, adventure fiction and amazing tales and all that stuff that came that out after sense. the 50s. Yeah. Even yeah. things like paper shortages uh, led to the rise and decline of, of, the, of, of novelists mm. being able to make money. The other thing I found That's out, interesting. last thing I'll say um, about, uh, about this particular book is um, the guy who wrote Conan, who is, you know... An, Robert E. Howard? Yes, was an itinerant, um, you know, the itinerant barbarian who goes around slaying yes. people. Was in real life an itinerant uh, who, you know, like, would walk around, you know, with a gun and ultimately, uh, I think, uh, died of some kind of 
uh, disease when he was 31 or 30 or something. But he was his life parallels Conan in ways that the book reveals that are that are absolutely fascinating. That's interesting. Yes, I wouldn't mind looking into that. It's a very good book. I'll lend it to you. Has it got to the bit where Gary Gygax and all his friends have like silly spells named after them? Because <laughs> I remember like. Drawmage is Drawmage's magic, whatever is like Drawmage's Jim Ward spelt backwards. Uh, it's, it's some guys in a room who have no time to think about proper character names. No, I don't know. Currently, I'm on a section about where Gygax angrily claims that D&D isn't inspired by Tolkien, um, mm. which is okay. I didn't know and that. The book basically is just no, this is nonsense. <laughs> it's just, and then ex- <laughs> it ex- explains all the ways in which that is just not true. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, histories of fairies, all kinds of things. Um, even things like dragons are so popular now in fantasy fiction because Tolkien mm. studied Beowulf, and Beowulf featured a dragon very prominently. And so and dragons appeared in The Hobbit, and yep. yeah, or a dragon appeared in... The- ah, it's interesting, and that's all, all that stuff is obviously now just massively established. Yes, it is, and it's, it's, you don't realise quite how much... It, you can trace the lineage of how yeah. so much of, of geek culture now relies on Tolkien, which relies on D&D, which relies on... Gygax and it, it, it's interesting it's interesting and um, relies on wargaming as well and, and it really does make clear how D&D evolved from essentially what was just medieval rules the reason that grid paper and drawing on grid paper became popular for D&D mm-hmm. was because um, <clears throat> it was a mechanic whereby when you're having your miniatures battle with soldiers running around when somebody starts digging a tunnel Obviously, the other general doesn't know where the tunnel is leading, so you start ah. tracing the tunnel on graph paper. Yeah. And that was the origins of... Um, uh, Drawing out tunnels on graph paper. Which yeah. was, of course, the heart of D&D. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting book. Very, very much uh, recommended. But you, while we were plumbing our minds for books for that books. were gamer-related, you read a book on poker a while back, didn't you? Yeah, well, well I, feel, I feel it's not... I don't know if it's as interesting now. It's, there aren't that many books on playing games or kind of... I don't want to say game theory because I don't know if game theory is the right word, but like how to play games and how to play games well. And for a birthday ages ago, I got David Sklansky's The Theory of Poker, which is apparently... One of the best... I don't know. I used to play poker quite a bit. And you I was, used to play a lot I was of online okay. poker, didn't you? I, I paid my rent occasionally with poker winnings. Wow. And I wasn't... I'm not particularly good at it, but it's more like the, it, the quality of people playing online was not that great. I'm not very good <laughs> at poker. Um, but no, it was, it was him trying to explain how people... How to be better at poker. And you would think... Whenever you see poker portrayed in films, there's always people sat there... Uh, making really risky plays or someone who knows what the exact percentage chance of a particular hand appearing is and it's just him going no it's not like that it's it's like it's about consistency right it's about consistency in some situations good and bad and you just you don't have to do the maths of exactly how many cards might help you next turn you just have to think how many you know i'm in a particular position there might be six cards out of the whole deck that might come up next that could help me and I've just, they're asking me to put in loads of cash, so I won't. <laughs> and that's kind of, I, I don't want to simplify it that much, but um, it, it made poker look, I don't want to say easy, but it made poker decision-making way simpler. Mm. And he just, he writes quite clearly about why things are good and bad decisions and how if you spend time seriously thinking about yourself in a game, like you say, if you're consistent when you play and you consistently do, don't take certain risks and play in a particular way you just it's fine you'll probably win more often than you lose and it's i don't know it's not very dramatic to say that no but it makes sense I've and that's uh, how professionals win money is they play consistently i've had some really interesting uh, learnings because i'm I've, I've started poking the netrunner tournament circuit now and you know mm. we've got the region the european regionals are coming up soon and i've just been studying and playing a bit in that and um yeah it's just interesting because you learn that the best decks and the best players aren't they're not, you know, the most spectacular decks. What they are are the decks that can get you through a tournament. And getting you through a tournament means your deck will not dick you in one of the games that day. So the best decks are actually just very simply reliable. They uh, they can be trusted to do certain things. They're predictable. I was so, going to say predictable is exactly what that sounds like. Yeah, but predictable not for your opponent necessarily, but for you. you but know- you know, uh, you were saying a thing a while ago where professionals say that the professionals, well, the really good players, <laughs> you draw a hand and whatever the hand is, you know what you're going to do in Netrunner with it. Yeah. You don't mulligan and say, oh, this is useless. You immediately, you look at what you have and you say, this lends me towards yeah. making these moves. Because all of those cards ultimately are useful. And if you're playing it 
you want a deck where you can draw any five cards off the top at the beginning of the game, and because theoretically all the cards in your deck are good, that deck will just leave, that hand is just a particular kind of game that you'll be playing. So yeah. you have no money, fine, then you can you know get your equipment up, up very quickly. But yeah, it was interesting that and to hear you talk about online poker because yes, I'm discovering that card play at a high level is just it's not about making your deck magically do the right thing it's about being able to sort of ride your deck yes like, yeah and, and just use it correctly and- that makes that makes a lot of sense um and that in a way that i feels like some of the chapters that i read in the book of, of him saying look you you start in a position with particular cards and immediately you know what you're going to do and sometimes sometimes in poker it's really undramatic because you just fold but that's the right thing to do you just don't participate in that play at that point mm-hmm. or uh you participate up to a point and then you step out because you just otherwise you throw money into a hole and <laughs> yeah no you, you choose your moment when to do a particular thing and it's choice and consistency yeah uh you've been reading fiction i have it hasn't all been boring real world stuff what was the fiction that you read that well, you recently, liked? Well, recently... Do you want the one that I liked or the one that I didn't like? Oh, well, both, if there was two. The one I didn't like was the one I read more recently, which was a classic, quote-unquote. I read The Glass Speed Game by Joseph Knecht, I think. Okay. Uh, check the podcast notes to see if I'm right or wrong. And but you didn't like it? This, Yeah, it was an interesting one. This is a book written in the um, uh, very beginning of the 20th century. And it, it's sort of science fiction-y. It hypothesizes a day-after-tomorrow world whereby... Um, so Friday then yes basically where music it starts off I believe as a mathematical game mm-hmm. and um, you are essentially challenged to or maybe music I can't remember but uh, the students of maths or music or whatever it is are challenged to essentially oh it's going to be very difficult to explain this okay it's a very big <laughs> thick book written a long time ago they are challenged to transpose a certain theory onto something else. Okay. So how do you get from... And I'm going to create a ridiculous example that doesn't make sense in the book. Sure, but sure. How do you get from, let's say, this equation which shows how the theory of relativity works, how do you drag it over to, uh, for example, this explanation of combustion in a rocket ship engine? And when you're, work, when you're able to operate with that stuff and knowledge itself like it is putty... That game can be played with music as well. How do you transform this symphony into this sonata while you're playing the instrument, you know, like, without ever missing a beat, so to speak? That's un- interesting. <clears throat> I mean, that's unusual, but that's in- it, interesting. The Glass Bead Game is really a book about how um, the world is overtaken by this great art form, which is called the Glass Bead Game, but is no longer played with beads. Um, and it is this, the thing I just described, but now... Uh, so that could be played with music or maths or philosophy or anything. Now you need to understand that it is cross, uh, like cross professional. So in the glass bead game, you might be challenged to, to transport, to get from Kant's ethical theories to Beethoven's fifth symphony. So it's a, it's a really weird translation system. Sort of, but yes, yes, you, you, yes, you're, you're correct in the way I've explained it. If you, if you're only incorrect because I haven't been able to do it justice. But, but I mean, it sounds unusual. It's ga- really yes, weird. It is. The game, okay. the game is largely philosophical okay. and doesn't quite exist. Um, and the book is about, you know, a kid who gets sort of pulled out from his orphanage home and becomes the greatest player of the grass speed game. I didn't finish it, however, because it was largely stodgy. I thought it might be this heroic piece of fiction for the sort of board gaming hobby, like yeah. this ancient artifact which contains a lot of lessons for the games we play now. Actually, mostly it was um, uh, a very old-fashioned view on what is important in life, which is to say the classics, uh, rather than anything being done or written now. All the players of the Glassbeed game play the Glassbeed game using pieces of art that were created in the 18th and 17th century, which is bizarre for a sci-fi novel as if people aren't or are incapable of creating anything hmm. of intrinsic worth then. Hmm. So, yes, an interesting oh, book. Okay. And potentially worth poking around and reading criticism on it. But um, I read that and didn't enjoy it very much. But... You did read and enjoy The Player of Games by Ian M. Banks. Ian M. Banks. Uh, Ian M. Banks is, I think, becoming more popular in America now, but he is a UK uh, science fiction author. He's been popular certainly here for a while, but yes. Although he's always been a little bit underground for some people. Some people, yeah. He's never been uh, huge, but he writes uh, science fiction that uh, Paul doesn't like, uh, but I do. 
I, what I've read, yeah, I haven't yet read one that I got that excited about. Which is all everyone will hate me because he's well regarded. He's very well regarded. I'm sorry, I had nothing, nothing and now, turned well, me on. He just passed recently, didn't he? He did. Um, uh, he released one last non-sci-fi because he also wrote non-sci-fi under fiction, the name of Ian Ian Banks. Banks. That was a that was also well received. Maybe I should try some of those. Maybe I, and I, I have a feeling I might like some. I of them, certainly actually. like uh, Complicity quite a lot. But um, but the Player of Games. The Player of Games is a book about a player of games. It is uh, in the book. The culture is a soci- is a sort of advanced society whereby robots basically do everything, but humans are kept around because um, one in a million <laughs> humans or one in a billion humans has this this ability to make decisions better than the robots can, and the, ro- yeah. the robots can't understand this. Um, but they keep so they're an around. asset. <laughs> the humans and are because very... there are so many of them. There will be useful humans. Yes, occasionally. Okay. Um, but uh, the player of games is about uh, the sort of the first contact section of this species, just dis- uh, discovering another species, which um, determines all places in its culture by playing a game. Not unlike the last speed game, except awesome because it's basically analog- an- analogous to Sid Meier's Civilization. <laughs> Um, the game that they play? Yes. Okay. Um, it's, they sort of played in an arena and you have soldiers and you can upgrade things and you move them ah. around. But, but very complicated. It's an exotic, romanticized version written by someone who loves Sid Meier's Civilization, basically. Wow. And so the culture pick out this human who's basically dedicated his life to playing games of a million different colors and varieties and say, um, well, look, we're just going to send you to this alien world and you're going to beat the game. And in doing so, this horrible fascistic alien race will realize that uh, they should listen to what we say because we're smarter than them. Oh, my God. And it's just, it's mostly about this. It's not all about the game, but it's a lovely, it is the book I've read that treats gaming with uh, respect and romance. Uh, As in it makes it sound, what, exciting and yeah. intelligent? And, and it's written by someone who plays games, which a lot of authors, a lot of authors who are capable of telling a good story, you know, can't really do. Games that. suffer from terrible representation in all sorts yes. of storytelling mediums, don't they? They do. And so it's just, it's it's a rare and precious thing to find a game that doesn't just have great gaming scenes, but is fundamentally about a game and uses a game as a narrative device to explain more about uh, a, the world and the story and the characters and what's happening. There's a mm. wonderful scene in it where um, the human is playing a match of this game yeah, and uh, essentially all the other aliens in it have ganged up against him and he's losing and losing and losing. And uh, he goes to his bedroom because these games take days and days to play out. Um, and he goes to his bedroom and he sends a message to his ship which has an AI in it which is linked to the culture, and um, he sends a message to it saying, computer, is there a way out? And he waits for the message, because the ship's hiding behind a moon or something. So yeah. it, he, he waits for like the five minutes or whatever for the message, the sublight message to reach the ship and come back. And it comes back with the computer saying, yes, there is a way out. I've seen it. Do you want to know it? And he sends a message back to the ship going, no, no, I just needed to know there was a way out. And then the next day he goes back and continues playing. And it's just a great moment of human, like just the, the human moment of, is there even any point? Because we've all been there playing games of just where you get backed into a corner and you don't even know if you can get out and you can't see it. And that that, that horrible ludo-claustrophobia that comes there. Ludo-claustrophobia? Yeah, I like that one. You can have it. Ludo-claustrophobia. Um, it sounds interesting. I mean, you're absolutely right that, that games... Even just talking about poker a few moments ago, games look often rubbish in books or films. <laughs> and the poker that James Bond plays with a guy who sits and says a thing and they do a thing with cards and you go, that wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. It just, it's rubbish. <laughs> it's rubbish. I, I do like Casino Royale as a movie. I think it makes poker. And then you go and you have a heart restarting moment. And <laughs> I like that film a lot. I really like that. <laughs> and your car flips over. That's, that's the, poker. That's the best. It's uh, my favourite James Bond. Maybe is Casino Royale. Really? Yeah. Okay. I don't. I wasn't a big fan of the other Daniel Craig movies, but I haven't seen any of them. Should we get back to board games? Okay, rather than Daniel Craig and his really tight swimming trunks. Coming Did Daniel up? Craig okay. ever get back to you about appearing on Shut Up and Sit Down? Um. No. And now presenting the Shut Up and Sit Down game of the month. Of the podcast, because every three weeks there's more than one in a month. Sometimes. Aren't there? 
You ready? No. Robo Rally. Robo Rally. Robo Rally. Robo Rally. I'm a robot racing. You've had Robo Rally for a really long time. Just don't <laughs> don't start. Don't start. You've had it for a long time, haven't you? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, Robo Rally was uh, might have been the first good board game I bought ever. Uh, um, when do you think that was? Probably when I was about twelve or thirteen. Oh, so wow. all the okay. way back in two thousand seven. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> No, it, I, I'm eternally grateful for Robber Rally because if I'd picked out something bad instead of it being good, I might have never decided to shut up and sit down. I t- should point out some of our listeners probably are young and there's nothing wrong with being 12 in 2007. <laughs> no. I mean, you probably should have been working harder. You could have been a bit older and pulled your finger out and made an effort, but... Mm. You know, it's all right. It's all right to be an age, I guess. Yeah, you know, I mean, just... they can catch up, right? They'll well, be they should. Catch up they better. Rubber Rally. <laughs> Rally is a game um, which has gone through several editions in the years. Yeah, it has. And I'm very proud to say that I have the Wizards of the Coast edition and just about everything that's been printed for it, which is good because it's the best one. Ah, With the most color okay. and cards and pewter miniatures. That's interesting. The edition of Rubber Rally on shelves right now, I don't know if I'd recommend because compared to the Wizards of the Coast version, it's like... You know how, you know, there's vanilla ice cream and there's chocolate ice cream? Yes. If you imagine ice cream with no flavor at all... That, um, that's like what the current uh, yogurt yogurt flavoured ice cream but without sugar or anyway basically it just the Wizards of the Coast version you're racing robots across a factory floor and you're programming them every time everyone has, gets a random hand of cards and has to program out the rotate left and the move one forward and then you all do it all and race your robots and usually what happens is people bash each other off course as you go towards a, right because as soon as you go across the factory <laughs> floor um, there's there's stuff on the floor that makes you move. There are conveyor belts and there are obstacles and you bounce into them and you yeah. move and you turn. And the challenge is predicting where you think you're going to end up based on your programming and what you might bump Flame into. Flamethrowers, irradiation, lasers, pits, crushes. Yeah, it's all ramps and water. Yes. There's so much, so much stuff to, to get in your way. And mostly what you'll discover is because you lay out these five cards... You know, maybe you move, you're, you you do what the manual refers to as the robot dance, which is where you will rotate your entire body and head and mouth even sometimes as you try and imagine, because you can't ever touch the board. Yeah. So you're trying to imagine if you move one forward as your first card, the conveyor belt will move you forward and rotate you. So then you're going to be facing that direction on that yes. square for your second card. You have to do this for five cards. And so the thing is, Robo Rally, everyone programs their robots in, a, in 60 seconds or whatever. Then as you're actually doing the maneuvers, uh, a bit like Space uh, space Alert, yeah. one player will just go, oh no. Because you'll suddenly realize that something is out of sync or something isn't going to happen. As your robot heroically accelerates into a pit never to be seen again. Or just bangs into a wall five over times. Over over again. <laughs> That's your turn. Or drives into a flamethrower repeatedly in such a way that you drive into it and then a conveyor belt moves you and you dri- you've driven yourself back into it. <laughs> it is Four it's, times. It's probably the funniest game in my collection. And you're laughing even describing it, but you say you don't like it. I, well, yeah, and this is absolutely just me being crabby, I guess. I'm really bad at it. I'm really bad at Robo Rally. Um and it was I. I can't come up with five orders for a robot in sixty seconds, <laughs> and I'm just I'm at not loss. even if they were like make me tea. No, fetch no. In real them. life, I'm I'm particularly bad in real life at ordering robots. <laughs> and if you put me in a room with a robot uh, and gave me a minute, I would be banging into the wall five times. <laughs> the robot would be fine. Um, but this goes back to a thing that that I want to briefly touch on when we uh, when we were chatting with backers a while ago. And we had a Skype chat with someone who says he times games sometimes, uh, almost like the chess kind of thing where you have a oh, clock. Oh yeah, and how any game can basically become as intense as Tashkalar as long as you have a chess clock. Yeah, um, <laughs> or the idea of playing something like ta- Tashkalar with a chess clock of like right, you've got sixty, th- you've got these cards, you've got sixty seconds. Th- th- I can't say that. 60 seconds to think about what you're going to do with those cards. That's it. That's the only time that you have. And that... The thing is, I'm saying that, that might suit me better for certain games because I'm I'm terrible at just... I'm terrible. You're not... You I am. But stuff like, I mean, Agricola, where you get branching actions and you look at what you've got right now in Agricola and you think, if I get this now, then in a turn I'll get this and that will kind of snowball into I'll put this down but they're going to go I can't do that and I know people who do that and they they will play especially if you ever play anything asymmetrically and they have two hours to think about their turn it's just you've lost that's it then I'm never going to have the capacity in my head 
it's like why I don't play chess very much because I can't. Everyone who you I can't know telescope plays, outwards. You can plan one turn. I can plan, yeah, a few turns ahead, and I can look at what the situation is. But I don't. It's kind of everyone who I know who can play chess will be able to do that better than me, so they will always beat me. So there is. There's no capacity within me to like do that. Although Robo Rally obviously isn't about that. It's about sixty seconds of yeah. telescoping. But, it's still, but I'm also you're really also bad, bad at that. At that. So See, I have actually I mean I get it. I do get that any game you're bad at is going to be an <laughs> uphill struggle to enjoy. But um I don't know. I I've had a lot of fun trailing at the back of the pack in Robo Rally and there's there is the role of there's always a player <laughs> who's last and that player yes. is always kind of the butt of everyone's jokes and that's okay. I guess if it's you every it's, time, it, yeah, that's it can different. be fine. It can be fine, uh, and the the point of playing games isn't necessarily to win anyway. No, I guess not. I mean, it can be fun, but it's not. It's not the be all and end all. I think because the, we've never been big. Rubber we're rally, not power game winners. Here's the thing: Rubber Rally might be <laughs> um, Robot Rally. Uh, might have my favourite board gaming moment ever, which was I think we there was one point when there were like seven people around my house, and I got it out on a whim. It's like, oh wait, we could play Rubber Rally and. We're playing it, and there are loads of option cards, which are things like crab legs and a helicopter fan and yes. really, really big bombs and massive lasers and howitzers, that all of which can be attached to your robot as you stop in pit stops around the board. And the board course, actually, everybody, you invent the racetrack yourself out of a bunch of modular factory that, yeah, tiles. Yeah, click together. And some of those boards are so hard. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so I remember that I acquired a... I got, I got my favourite option card in the game, which I'd never had the chance to use before, which is a scrambler bomb. And all it is is you put it down, and it it blows up after the end of a turn. But at the end of that turn, everyone, all, all of everyone's um, command programming cards get thrown away, and all the robots start doing random things. Ah. And it was just this beautiful moment of like six robots running towards the home stretch, and I knew I wasn't going to win, but I had the current board state, so yeah. I drop a scrambler bomb, and I just. I remember almost wetting myself, laughing at all these robots immediately rotating and flinging themselves into bits and driving off the edges of cliffs and just driving into walls over and over and wow. over again. And someone obviously, inexplicably, through the random cards he was dealt, was given a course that was better than, than the, the thing he programmed himself. Yeah. Wow. It was just. It was. It was joyous. It well, was, I can see the fun in that. Well, I'm sure I'm you just, can terrible at it it's it's i don't know it's an incompatibility with me i guess that i'm just i'm the guy who's not very good at that and i'm very confused i think i'm gonna have more and more difficulty dealing with stuff like this where because we've got so many nice editions of board games coming mm. out now and i'm wondering if editions are what what are we gonna what are we gonna say if like i don't know a new gallic well gallic truck is hideous so it doesn't matter but what are we gonna say <laughs> if like a new terra mystica edition comes out and it's rubbish well that's that's an interesting thing thing isn't it you you really like this particular version of robo rally because you like how it, it looks it's gorgeous and, and colorful it and it has out. the most stuff it's and all the who, same who publishes it now by the way uh i don't know i, I want to say um but you think it's lost a lot of color I and style or... it's definitely one of those companies that makes so many games then they're all they all feel like crap like oh wow the card star it's not even i remember the I don't think the Goodness map. Me. The, but the factory, the map, the board, which is to say, isn't even board. It's like card. Sh- it's like sheets, sh- sheets of paper. Oh, really? You know? Oh, like that material. And ah. but, but it's because theoretically, you get like eight of them, so they're not going to give you eight boards. And it's like, well, the original Robo Rally gave you eight thick, chunky boards with nice art, and yeah. it just feels very, very, very cheap. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Especially when it's as simple a fix as just getting some artists to draw like a really gorgeous edition rather than Blimey. just churning out stuff that looks like draft paper. So Robo Rally. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. Just <laughs> editions are editions are editions are weird and difficult. A, a thing, yeah. Well, that's the thing that's going to happen. I mean, Cosmic Encounters been through is it eight or some ridiculous yeah. amount of iterations. And we're very lucky that we live in a time where the current edition is the best is one. A, but, is a very good one. But yeah. slowly but surely, all these games we like are going to start getting new editions from different publishers that aren't as good as they used we'll, to be. Well, we'll have to keep. What are one, we going to do? We'll have to keep one eye on on what happens and look at how things are. And uh, sometimes new editions are better, so that's fine. That's uh, good. Um, and sometimes they're not, and we'll just 
just have to cross the bridges when we come to them. Well, I think. That, that, should we end, uh, that, use that as an upbeat ending to but the podcast? Y- like, I, yeah. But <laughs> no, some, uh, some of the additions, some might not work, but I think in some cases they'll, they'll be nice, new, improved versions of things. So that's yes, fine. You're right. Alien Frontiers, there's a new edition of that. There is a new edition of that, and that's going to be good because Alien Frontiers is a good game, though I don't know if it's aged wonderfully. Really? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Well, this is, this is what will happen. We're being sent the new version because we're jerks. I'm really annoyed that the the Kickstarter version of King, Kingdom Builder of Kingdom Builder right now is going to have individual wooden that, Well, this is another thing. In Games News, we had uh, sort of sexier Takedo and sexier Kingdom Builder, which were all the Kickstarter fancy editions that were just a bit nicer. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're both popular games, and they've got a good audience, so the Kickstarters have gone well. And they're both games that we've enjoyed. I mean, I, I quite like Kingdom Builder, and you really like it, and we both had a good time with Takedo, which is good fun and really, really cute. Yes. Really good-looking game. I'm just um, annoyed, though, that Kickstarting editions that are nicer well, than the one I've got. This is it. This is, feeds into exactly what, uh, what you just said, which is... Uh, you know, that people might make a thing again. <laughs> what, what you've done there is proven to me that uh, if new editions aren't as nice as the old edition, I'll be mad. And if yes, new editions are nice, probably. Which is reasonable. But if they're nicer than the new edition, I will also be mad. That's less reasonable. Because I no longer have the definitive nice edition. And that, in, a way that, in a way, that's reasonable. And in a way, that means you will never be happy in your life. <laughs> Everybody, uh, we're going to say goodbye for the week. We're going to Paul's not. We're not going to be able to do a podcast in the next few weeks because Paul is to going try to and Skype. I don't know. No, it's crazy. You're going right. to. I need the touch of your, of. your body. Uh, <laughs> you're going to San Francisco for GDC for the next few weeks. You'll be back at the uh, end yeah, of March and, uh, for my first actual holiday in like four years. Yeah, congratulations! Uh, and uh, I'm going to be manning the site. What was that noise? It's just me being scared. If you have enjoyed the podcast, everybody, please, please do uh, give us a nice review on yeah, iTunes. Not and just vote on Reddit. And not tweet just it and because send it to people. we like to get uh, reviews and nice upvotes, but because the more the podcast is shared, the more you're sharing uh, love of board gaming and all that lovely stuff. And if you are just listening to the podcast, know that we have a fine site with lots of video reviews, which are and our big reviews thing. and special guest contributors. Games and news every week. Games uh, that news every is week. www. Lee's really good. You and Lee's really good netrunner retrospective about learning games and struggling, which I could relate to, which was very good Thank as well. Stuff like that. See, you ever see what you're missing out on, everybody. And uh, it's nice. It's all different things. All this, different things about games. Can I get the URL out now? No. This exists at www.shutupandsitdown.com Or shutupshow.com Yes Because we're gradually expanding our borders And eating more domains Taking more and more of the We're going to have BBC.co.uk is the next one that we'll take (laughs) Goodbye everybody And then yahoo.com That's got to be cheap